0: Welcome to The Two Testaments, a guided journey through scripture with leading experts on the Bible. Hosted by Ronnie Cosman and Will Kynes. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts or at thetwotestaments.com. Follow us on Twitter at The Number Two Testaments or ask questions in our Facebook group.
1: Welcome to The Two Testaments, a guided journey through scripture. I'm Will Kynes.
2: And I'm Ronnie Cosman.
1: And in this episode, I'm excited to uh, introduce you to Ronnie. And he's going to walk us through uh, our season we've got ahead of us on the book of Romans. So Ronnie Cosman, assistant professor of New Testament here at uh, the, in the Biblical and Religious Studies Department at Samford And his research and teaching focuses on how the New Testament and Jewish literature of the Second Temple period interpret the Hebrew Bible Old Testament. So we share a common interest in questions of illusion and intertextuality and so forth and so on. Now, his Ph.D. dissertation at the University of Toronto Mm -hmm. uh, was Adam's Wisdom and Israel's Law. Natural Law in Early Judaism. Mm -hmm. Now revising that, getting it ready for publication. Mm -hmm. So look out for that soon. That book is going to be great,
2: I'm sure. Hopefully sooner than (laughs) uh, you anticipate.
1: (laughs) Um, now, uh, that book is looking at how ancient Jewish approaches to natural law illuminate the book of Romans and also a number of other uh, Second Temple texts. Uh, and uh, this is one of the things that I really appreciate about your scholarship, Ronnie, and I think that we're going to see over the course of this season, is that Ronnie has this kind of capacious interest uh, that includes not only how we interpret the Bible but the theological and philosophical questions that the Bible raises so he's really a serious scholar and um, another indication of that is the other articles that he's published so you've published an article uh, on the Dead Sea Scrolls mm-hmm. and on the old Greek version of Isaiah right so just a wide range of topics that mm-hmm. you've taken on here and we see that that kind of knowledge and that that. Curiosity come out in our discussions uh, over the course of this season. And another thing, Ronnie, and this is I need to say publicly: okay, the two testaments was your idea. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Ronnie has this uh, entrepreneurial spirit that he brings to biblical scholarship, paired with uh, his desire to dig deeply into these texts. And so, uh, even before you came here to Samford, you had started this interdisciplinary network of scholars in Toronto, uh, and then you came. Down here with this idea to do a podcast making biblical scholarship engaging and accessible. And as soon as I heard about it, I volunteered uh, to join you. And it's been such a pleasure to do that with you. So, Ronnie, you've clearly spent some good time thinking about Romans, mm-hmm. writing about Romans. So, what first drew you to the book?
2: You know, I think what first drew me to the book, Will, is that I thought that. Romans was uh, clearer than it is. Um, So I, you know, I liked that it was kind of theologically rich and really theologically front-loaded and dense, but also I thought, oh, it's theologically rich and also uh, really clearly stated the the theology of the letter, you know, all these (laughs) indicative and declarative statements.
1: You know, it's funny that you mentioned that because that's exactly what doesn't attract me to Paul's <laughs> letters and what attracted me to a book like Job instead. Sure. Is yeah. I just felt like it was so mysterious. Oh, yeah, things yeah. weren't clear, right. uh, but to each his own.
2: Yeah. Well, I have been disabused <laughs> of that idea that Paul is so clear because, you know, as you keep reading, you start to realize, oh, there are things that I actually don't understand about this letter. And you read it again and you read it in a different way. Uh, so. Now, I don't have a conversion narrative to Paul's letter to the Romans or to why I studied Paul. When I went to McMaster University, I studied how Paul interpreted Scripture, the Old Testament, Hebrew Bible, in uh, his letters to the Romans in chapters 9 through 11, how he interpreted the patriarchal narratives. And but, when I was there at McMaster, I was really enriched by these other Jewish texts, and my eyes had kind of been opened to a world of Jewish literature that, you know, I was previously not really familiar with, like the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, and so, with that in view, I then went to the University of Toronto. And in Toronto, my my supervisor, uh, Judith Newman, who's a well-regarded scholar of Second Temple Judaism and of the Hebrew Bible, uh, which is interesting that I had her as my supervisor, given that my dissertation was on Second Temple Jewish literature, of which I think Paul is uh, should be included in. Right. Yeah. So um, but my again, my interest there was in how do these Jewish texts uh, interpret the figure of Adam? And as I was reading these Jewish texts, I realized, you know what, Paul does very similar and different things that mm-hmm. can really be illuminated when we uh, put him alongside these early Jewish texts. Um, so that's kind of my, my own interest and what's fascinated me about Paul is reading him as a Jewish text alongside other Jewish literature of his time and what that can tell us about Paul's letters.
1: Yeah. And what we're doing here is we're creating a kind of audio commentary for Romans and these other books that we look at. And you've already introduced to us one of the issues that is going to be addressed in any commentary, which is these kind of introductory questions about what is the setting in which this text uh, was originally written? And so let's talk a little bit more about that. So the author.
2: Right. So it's about
1: the author of the book of Romans,
2: Right. So, Paul, um, you know, he has a very significant role, of course, in extending the gospel which is a Jewish message, right? Uh, The gospel is a Jewish message, but he is the apostle who's extending the gospel to the nations, to the Gentiles. Uh, Paul himself was Jewish uh, and of the different varieties of Judaism of his day, he was a Pharisee. Um, And this is important because from my perspective, again, we can read Paul's letters as Christian literature and we should read them that way, but uh, they are also at the same time, they were Jewish texts in their day. Paul was a Jew and was a Pharisee. Um, now Paul was quite opposed to the gospel and particularly he was opposed to other Jews who were following Jesus as the Messiah, other Jewish believers of Christ. And so he uh, was sent from Jerusalem to the synagogues in Damascus, where he was going to bring back these Jewish Christ followers back to Jerusalem to stand trial. While he's on his way, he has this dramatic encounter with Christ where he says that God revealed himself. He revealed uh, his son in me, Paul says, and then his life kind of completely pivots, right? He's no longer persecuting uh, Christ or the Messiah, but uh, he now becomes an apostle of the risen Messiah who encountered him and has uh, totally changed his life and turned him upside down. And he specifically becomes uh, chosen by Christ to become the apostle to the Gentiles, to the nations. Now, this encounter with Christ, I think, forces Paul to go back to his ancestral text, to Israel scriptures, to the Old Testament, and to read them anew. Uh, now, the gospel that he preaches to the Gentiles, of which he's the ambassador, he finds in Israel's scripture. He finds in the Old Testament. And he is now the Messiah's ambassador To the nations. He's proclaiming to the nations that Jesus is the crucified and now risen Lord, and Jesus is the King of all the world, of all the nations. And now, the Gentiles are supposed to become subject to this Jewish King, to this Messiah, through the obedience of faith. So, the letter of Romans itself is in some ways, I think one way to think about it, is a written extension of Paul's Gospel. It's an artifact, mm-hmm. right, of his proclamation. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are reading how he proclaimed the gospel, and you know, I think that Paul perhaps was actually quite successful because we still read this uh, message of the gospel today, even on this podcast. Right, we're hosting a bunch of people to help us uh, interpret, to discuss it. So we're discussing uh, here. We're here in the U.S., but people in other nations and throughout history, right, outside of Israel, have been in Gentile territories, have been reading and talking about the Paul's gospel to the nations.
1: Talk to us a little bit more about the date and the historical setting of the book.
2: Right. So, Paul is around 57, of uh, the year 57 of the Common Era, um, and Paul is writing from Corinth or from its vicinity. Uh, He doesn't know the church at Rome that he's writing to. He's never been there. Uh, and we wonder, well, why is he writing to them? We have some indications, and there may be multiple reasons why he's writing to them. Um, At the end of the letter, at the end of his letter, in chapters uh, 15 and 16, he tells us that he plans to eventually make it far, far west in Spain, Uh, but in the moment, he's going to go from the east, And he's going to go from the eastern part of the Mediterranean and take the money that he's gathered from his Gentile churches and bring that money to the church in Jerusalem. Uh, And perhaps he's worried about whether that money from the Gentiles is going to be received by the uh, by the church in Jerusalem. Uh, So there's a kind of Jew Gentile tension going on there. Uh, But when he comes to Jerusalem, then he plans to go to Spain to the west. And so he's writing to the church at Rome. He, tell, he tells us the reason is that he wants to get their support so that he can make a stop, to, stop at Rome and they can help send him uh, over to Spain, to the far reaches of the Western reaches of the Gentile world. Um,
1: and so you've raised here two other really important questions for Romans. And like most questions with Romans, they're debated. Uh, so let's talk about both of them. The first being, who is the audience? That he's writing to, and then the second would be, what's the purpose of this letter? Right, Uh, and you've touched on both of these, but walk us through some of the issues in these debates
2: about uh, this, the audience and the purpose. Some scholars put a premium on the purpose of the letter being to uh, to shore up support for his future mission to Spain. Now, this is a very long letter for him to do that, right? So, other scholars are going to look and say, well, what else can we discern from the letter? Maybe there's more than one purpose in him writing this letter to the Church of Rome. Uh, So, we might look and see in chapters 14 to 15 how Paul uh, there, he's really dealing with some issues that appear to be on the ground, like the strong and the weak and food issues and some scholars then correspond the tension between the strong and the weak to uh, relational tensions between Jews and Gentiles. Uh, and that is the, the tension between Jews and Gentiles is one that we see, or not just the tension, but the theme of Jews and Gentiles is one we find woven throughout Romans 1 through 4 in a, repeatedly, right, that the gospel is for both the Jew and Gentile. Um, And then also, we see this theme of Israel and the nations, Israel and the Gentiles in Romans 9 through 11, of course, uh, and then again in chapters 14 to 15. Um, So, that's one theme, and perhaps another important purpose behind Paul's letter to the Romans is to to deal with the relationship between Jews and Gentiles and how his gospel, you know, uh, resolves that issue. But another related issue then is who is the audience to the letter? And this is a question that comes up a couple of times in our interviews this season, right? Um, Is the audience of the letter composed of both Jews and Gentiles, perhaps predominantly Gentiles, but some Jews as well? Or is the audience to whom writes Gentiles, right? right? Because after all, Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. And so this is actually, I think, a quite difficult issue. And we're going to explore that with a couple of our guests uh, this season. Um, other themes, I think, that uh, pop up and that we talk about a number of times throughout our season are the, the theme of the righteousness of God. What does it mean, this phrase that comes up a number of times in chapter one, in chapter three, in chapter 10? What does Paul mean by this phrase, the righteousness of God? Scholars differ on how to take this phrase. Um, another theme that comes up uh, is, well, the place of the law. Uh, and this is uh, this is a difficult one because uh, sometimes we have negative statements about the law, that the law works wrath, for example, in chapter four. But then Paul also has positive statements about the law, such as that the law is only righteous and good. Uh, or he sees that uh, somehow there is some fulfillment of the law. The righteous requirements of the law are met in us in chapter eight. Uh, so that's another uh, theme that comes up in the letter. Um, and obviously that's been debated in church history, but another key issue that's been a hallmark, right, of readings of Romans is the interplay between faith uh, and works in salvation, yeah. Uh, So, Paul will say, you are justified by faith and not by works of the law, Um, and he says this also in his letter to Galatians, but then uh, he'll also say, it is not the hearer of the law, not the hearers of the law who are righteous in God's sight, but the doers of the law who will be justified in chapter two. So how do we fit these two things together? What seems to be works are very important and Paul wants the fulfillment of the law. It's what it seems, but then no, you're not justified by doing the law.
1: And what is most difficult for you in your reading of romance? What do you wrestle with the most? And then how do you try and solve that issue?
2: Well, whether I solve all these issues or not is, you know, I'm not sure, <laughs> but uh, so the church father origin in the third century, it, in the preface to his commentary on Romans, he said that of all of Paul's letters, that the Romans is the hardest, huh. and he gives us two reasons why it's the hardest. First, he says, because Paul, he says, and I'm quoting him here, makes use of expressions, which sometimes are confused. And insufficiently explicit. <laughs> and then the second uh, reason it's difficult, Origin says, is because Paul, and again I'm quoting him again, stirs up very many questions in the letter. And then he goes on to say that that the heretics, you know, uh, take up these questions in particular ways. So those two things are actually, I think, make reading Romans uh, very difficult. One is that again, uh, his he uses expressions that are confused and insufficiently explicit. Paul's language often is uh, is compressed. Uh, His logic is dense, and sometimes he's not always filling out all the gaps in his logic. Okay, so this is why that leaves it to us to try and do that. Right, and good luck. Right. (laughs) Um, So that's one one issue I think that makes reading Paul very difficult. Uh, I mean, this is, I think, is precisely what's at stake uh, or why we have these debates between Protestants and Catholics on justification, because they're filling in the gaps of Paul's logic and very different ways.
1: Right. And one of the values of having this broad range of interpreters who are going to come on this season and walk through the book with us is they're going to fill in gaps in different ways. And we get to see how that's done.
2: Yeah. The other uh, piece I think here uh, is um, that Origin mentions is that the heretics run with (laughs) statements in Paul in, you know, kind of strange ways. And there is that kind of anxiety, especially if you are within a particular ecclesial or church tradition, there is a kind of like questioning in your mind of how much freedom do I have to go in my reading of this mm. text? What are the boundaries? Or, you know, should we, should, should, should we just run freely in our interpretation of the text? So, that is a th- question that lurks, I think, in the background, especially for interpreters who, are, uh, who have grown up in a particular church tradition. Yeah.
1: And how do you think about responding to these challenges in Paul? What's, what do you find helpful?
2: Yeah, I mean I think in terms of Paul's really dense language and his incomplete uh, like logic in every sent in in his sentences I, I mean talking to people who read the text very differently because they're going to fill the gaps in different ways. So I think that's really helpful to uh, to kind of have me question why was I filling in the gap you right. know in the text in that way. Right. And is that the best approximation of what another Jew in the second temple period might have done, or is that now a very alien way of filling in the gap?
1: Right. And a lot of the research that you've done is trying to fill in those gaps in conversation with other second temple Jewish sources to kind of get a better feel of what the
2: interpretive options would have been at the time. That's right. Yeah. Different Jewish texts are Different because they say different things, right? So the goal when you compare with other Jewish texts is not simply to say this Jewish text says this and Paul says the exact same thing, but as a Jew who has his own perspectives as well. He fills in, can fill in gaps in different ways, especially in light of his uh, dramatic encounter with Christ.
1: So, can you give us an overview of the journey we're about to embark on here through Romans and introduce us to the guides that will be taking us along the way?
2: Yeah, sure. I'm happy to do that. Um, we have a really great array of scholars who take us through Romans. Uh, we began in Romans chapter 1, uh, and there are a number of important themes that come up here and that we talk about, such as what is the gospel? Uh, the theme of the righteousness of God, um, or Paul's extended discussion of God's wrath. He says in verses 16 to 18 of the first chapter For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed uh, from faith for faith, as it is written, the, the one who is righteous will live by faith. A number of scholars think this is like the thesis statement of Paul's letter to the Romans, and we have uh, Roy Champa, who is our colleague here in the Department of Biblical and Religious Studies, is the is the chair of the department, and he has written a really interesting essay on Paul's use of Habakkuk two four in this programmatic statement uh, in Romans one.
3: Oftentimes, the gospel is kind of reduced to, I believe, and therefore I get to heaven, Um, and I think it's important that for Paul, the gospel does have to do with our forgiveness of sins and how we can be made right with God. And certainly in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul talks about how Christ died for our sins, and that is essential. But the good news uh, doesn't just Uh, And there, the good news is that through Jesus Christ, God is making all things right that have been damaged through sin and through Adam. And the book of Romans is going to unpack
2: this along the way. We also have Frank Thielman, uh, who is professor on our campus here, but in Beeson Divinity School. And uh, Frank gives us, I think, a really insightful take on the meaning of the righteousness of God.
4: Hardest part of Romans 1 is understanding how Paul uses uh, righteousness language in Romans 1, 16 and 17. Um, the little phrase, the righteousness of God there, is a, a very compact phrase. Paul uses it elsewhere in Romans. He uses it more often in Romans than anywhere else. And... Um, it's a phrase that doesn't appear much in the New Testament. And so it's hard to know exactly what it means. I think in the rest of Romans, after one sixteen 16 and 17, Paul uh, unpacks what he means by that phrase. But when you first see it on the page and when the Roman Christians first heard it, they probably wondered, what does... Paul mean by that expression, the righteousness of God, exactly what is he talking about here?
2: Paul then shifts uh, his chastisement in chapter two. It's not the they of chapter one, but to a you who he repeatedly addresses throughout this chapter. He says in one, therefore, you have no excuse, whoever you are, when you judge others for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge are doing the very same things. And he goes on in verse 17 to say, But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast of your relation to God and so on and so forth, who is this you that Paul addresses? Now, the way most people interpret this uh, is to say that this is a Jewish interlocutor. Even most scholars take it this way. But Matthew Thiessen, who uh, joins us from McMaster University, uh, and he's the author of a really interesting book called Paul and the Gentile Problem, uh, Matt is going to say, hang on not so fast and he's going to argue for a different interlocutor he's going to take the gentile audience very seriously and he's going to say this is not a jew this is a gentile
0: i think here he's conceding good works are really important i'm not even conceding he's agreeing yeah he just assumes they're important because all ancient jews thought they were important the question is what's the sort of foundation for the good works right and and Our English really stinks at getting some of Paul across with you use justified justification language. Yeah, it's awful, it's so common, and there's no good solution. But the language has to do with justice and righteousness and righteous. Uh, and we distinguish those two in English justified and righteous, even though they're the same word in Greek. And justification part of justification and right and in being righteousified is not just and this is where some Protestant um, hearers may have trouble. It's not just this forensic declaration for Paul. It's not just you're declared righteous. It's that God actually infuses believers in Paul's mind with a power to live justly and live righteously. Right. And so that, and that's salvation um, is not only, but that's an integral part of salvation. And so for Paul, you have to have these good works. It's maybe uh, indicative of what, Comes in the future eternal life.
2: In chapter three and four, we uh, move into the territory where Paul articulates perhaps what he's most famously well known for, right? The idea of justification by faith. In 328, Paul says, for we hold that a person is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Now, this verse and other verses like this here in Romans, but also in Galatians uh, have been the subject of debate, you know, for many years, right, in the Protestant Catholic disputes. Uh, And we have a formidable Protestant interpreter uh, who's going to give us his reading of these chapters. And we're joined by Tom Schreiner uh, of Southern Seminary, who's the author of the Romans Commentary and the Baker Exegetical Commentary on the New Testament series. Tom, I think, gives us a strong Protestant reading of what it means to be justified by faith, but also of the phrase, not by works of the law. Um, And Tom, really charitably, I think, but really in a, in a really insightful way, uh, dialogues with people who read that phrase very differently, especially those who are associated with the new perspective on Paul.
3: By birth, no one, no one is in the category of, uh, of the righteous. And, and of course, this gospel, his gospel doesn't make much sense if there's not a, a recognition of the universality of human sin. And if I could just say a pastoral word here, this this is the pressure point in our culture today
5: mm-hmm.
3: i believe the pressure point is most people in our culture i'm talking about unbelievers now most believers in our culture they do not have this radical view, uh, of, sin. view of sin and therefore the gospel that jesus saves it it doesn't scratch an itch i'm not a sinner like this so this very bleak portrait of, of human beings, it's, uh, it, it has to be in a sense understood or heard first. Now, some people already know this, right? And, and they have the sense of this. Luther certainly had a great sense of this in his own life. But, uh, but I think in our culture today, this, this vision of universal sin doesn't, it doesn't resonate with most people.
2: In chapters 5 and 6, especially in chapter 5 now, uh, Paul's perspective shifts to this cosmic scale, this cosmic viewpoint, and many scholars call this uh, apocalyptic. Uh, In Romans 5, 12 to 20, uh, Paul tells us how sin came into the world through one man and death came through sin, and so death spread to all because all have sinned. And then he tells us that uh, just as one man's trespass led to condemnation for all, so one man's act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all. Uh, Paul then also in chapter six is going to use uh, a lot of slavery type language. And Beverly Gaventa uh, of Baylor University, she is the author of Our Our Mother, St. Paul, and of When in Romans, an invitation to linger with the gospel according to Paul. Uh, But Beverly is going to to join us and talk to us about these two chapters, and she really draws out the battle and conflict imagery and the apocalyptic texture of uh, these chapters.
6: The first thing I should say about that is it doesn't mean it's a horror movie, right? (laughs) Um, Apocalyptic is not disaster. You know, apocalypse in Greek is an uncovering. Uh, it is a revelation, if you will, and when, when those of us who use this language to talk about Paul's theology as apocalyptic, when we use that term, what we're trying to get at, and it's a shorthand for a much larger notion, is that the gospel, that the event of the death and resurrection of Jesus comes as God's intrusive act in a world that is uh, ruled by sin and death, a a world that's gone its own way, if you will, and that God reclaims that world uh, in the person uh, and the work of Jesus. So it is an apocalypse in that sense. there's not a kind of nice tidy line across history in which Jesus is kind of the best new teacher on the block, you know, Jesus is not a a new, improved David. Uh, Jesus is an intervention in a world that is uh, a disaster.
2: We then come to chapter seven, especially where we have this infamous I, right? The I says things like this. "For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree that the law is good. But in fact, it is no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells within me that is in my flesh. I can will what is right, but I cannot do it, and so on and so forth. Now, the I uh, has given interpreters grief, yeah? (laughs) Is it Paul? Is it Adam? Is it Israel? Is it a Christian? Is it a non-Christian? Who is the I? Susan Eastman of Duke Divinity School, Uh, she's the author of Paul and the Person, reframing Paul's anthropology. And Susan, I think in a really provocative way, is going to invite us to enter into the dramatic experience of the I.
5: I think Romans 7 is famously or infamously difficult uh, because uh, a lot of, there are a lot of questions about who the I is. Paul switches to a first person Performance, I would say, uh, of a, the plight of someone in the grip of sin, struggling with the law, and unable to do the good that they want to do. Uh, and so it's very just technically difficult in a way, like much of Paul, to figure out what he's saying. I will say briefly, I read this in the ways I was taught for a long time as about total depravity or bad uh, motives. Even if you do good, you're doing it with bad motives. I was taught that that's what Paul is saying. And I kind of bought that until I was a respondent on a panel about Romans 7, and I really closely read the text in which the only time Paul talks about motives, they're good. I want to do the good. That's a motive. I want to do the good. And I thought, wow. Which is to say that close reading of a text can change your mind and change your life. Because it really did. Uh, It opened up the text for me simply by noticing that Paul was not saying what everybody told me he said. So I will just say that as a a taster.
2: In Romans chapter 8, verses 28, Paul says, We know that all things work together for good for those who love God. Who are called according to his purpose for those whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. What does it mean to be conformed to the image of his son? Uh, Haley Jacob of Whitworth University, uh, she's the author of conformed to the image of his son and she's going to really uh, push us to rethink what it means to be conformed to his image, and I think gives us a really provocative and uh, interesting reading of this verse—a verse that is well known by uh, many readers of Romans.
7: He comes to Romans eight, and he gets to this point where he says, essentially, we've established that we're all in the same boat, and we've established that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Messiah. And if we are in the family of God, then we get to share in that same inheritance or that same future, that same purpose that God had for everything in creation, including His own Son. And therefore, because of all of that, right, this is the end of Romans 8, we should be able to hold tight to it, hold fast to it, and let nothing else get in the way of us living in unity for the rest of the world's benefit or redemption.
2: In Romans uh, 9, Paul laments, and he wishes that he was accursed and cut off for his fellow Jews who have not believed the gospel. And in Romans 9 through 11, we have a really difficult text. We could say that about many of (laughs) these texts, of course. We have a number of images, such as God as a potter. We have an image of a a foot race. We we hear about God hardening who he wants and having mercy on whom he wants. And then we have the verse, and so all Israel will be saved. What does that mean? Uh, We're joined by Ross Wagner of Duke Divinity School. And I mean, if you made a list of scholars to interview on Romans 9 to 11, Ross has got to come up at the top or near the top of that list. Uh, He's written a number of essays on these chapters. He's also the author of Heralds of the Good News, Paul and Isaiah in Concert in the Letter to the Romans.
0: But that Paul can end up going from chapter 9 to end up with this celebration of the mercy of God really gives me pause then when it comes to attributing to Paul something like Calvin's doctrine of of election to reprobation. I see how Calvin could conclude that from the text that he's assembled and the logic that he's using. I just don't see Paul saying that in so many words or necessarily implying it. In chapters 12 through 15, Paul will give a
2: number of imperatives and commands. Uh, in this section, Paul exhorts his audience in chapter 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual or reasonable or rational worship. Uh, and he goes on to say, do not be conformed to, the, uh, to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind so you will discern what is the will of God. Um, he also then, in, in these chapters, appeals to his audience to be obedient to governing authorities and tells them to love one another and so, so that they will fulfill the law. Uh, now, Mike Bird of Ridley College uh, joins us to talk about these passages. We actually have two people joining us to talk about this passage. Uh, Mike Bird of Ridley College, who's written a, a Romans commentary in the Zondervan, uh, Zondervan Story of God Bible Commentary Series.
3: For example...
2: Uh, when, when he talks about
3: um, you know seeking the honor of others, um, that is cu- that is cu- countercultural because the whole name of the game, okay, was to seek your own honor, you know, to to climb climb the cursus honorum, you know, to you know now whether you're part of a trade guild or whether you're a senator, there's there's certain ladders you can you can rise up to become you know the head, the man or the chief person uh, in your little social group. And Paul doesn't want Christians playing the cutthroat game of trying to uh, get honor for themselves. Um,
2: he, he, he wants them to try establish the honor of others. And Nijay Gupta of Northern Seminary has written a number of things on Paul as well, including an interesting essay where he contextualizes Romans 14 to 15 and the dynamics of the strong and the weak in faith and the issues that Paul points out there around food. And he contextualizes that in the context of another Jewish text, first Maccabees. Uh, First
3: Maccabees and the Maccabean literature brings out this idea that Jews were willing to fight to preserve their identity. Part of that was food. Part of that was related to who you eat with, but also what you eat. And um, that became a point of tension. And so, for example, in the book of Acts, you have Peter being told to fellowship with this God-fear Cornelius who's a Gentile, and he has a vision about animals. Why did he have a vision about Gentiles? Because this is running along the lines of Jewish questions about purity, and food was such an important part of that. And if we go to 1 Corinthians, we start talking about food sacrifice to idols and what do Jews do with that? Sorry, what do Jewish Christians do with that? What do Christians in general do with that? So 1 Maccabees tells an important story about
2: certain dividing lines that the people of God drew, In chapters 15, 14 through 16, 27, uh, this is now we're at the end of the book. And here in chapter 15, Paul tells us that his aim is to eventually take the gospel to the far reaches of the Gentile world, to Spain. And he also stresses his priestly role as apostle to the Gentiles in verse 16. He says, The grace given to me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable sanctified by the holy spirit uh, we have with us for that passage uh, dr rafael rodriguez of johnson university uh, he joins us he's the author of if you call yourself a jew reappraising paul's letter to the romans and he talks to us about the importance of the cultic terminology here of paul's priest of the gentiles but also again he emphasizes the importance and significance of understanding paul's audience as gentiles Paul uses, you know, the language of physical approach, you know, in in the year 57, if you wanted to go and be in the actual
1: literal presence of Israel's God, where do you go? You go to Jerusalem, you go to the temple, you go to the altar. And as you're moving in these directions, you're drawing ever nearer to God, passing through higher and higher levels of, of holiness. And so, what's surprising about Romans is that Paul takes people who are furthest removed from the holiness of God, Gentiles, and he places them in the center of that
0: holiness, the sacred altar.
2: Uh, Finally, we have closing out our time in Romans is Beverly Gaventa of Baylor University, who talked with us about Romans 5 to 6, but we just thought we had to snag her to ask her about uh, the women who uh, we find in Romans 16. There are quite a number of them uh, that many scholars and many people have kind of been, let's say, blind to. Uh, So, for example, we have Phoebe and Junia and others as well. Uh, Beverly is going to talk about the importance of the significance of these women and the uh, important roles that they play in Paul's mission and in the churches.
6: If you take the language Paul uses here for the women he refers to in this list of greetings, it is language he uses elsewhere to refer to the labor of the gospel. So I don't know precisely what that means. I don't think we have any way of knowing exactly what that means. But I don't think we can divide it up and say, oh, the women who are laboring are laboring in the kitchen making the cookies. And the men are laboring by preaching and teaching. I don't I don't think the Greek gives us any um, any way of doing that if we're honest, about how the language is being used here.
1: We like to finish by asking each of our guests for a blurb, right? To recommend something for us, just like you see on the back of all these different books. So, Ronnie, could you provide us with a blurb? You could recommend, it could be a book, but it could be a life hack or a TV show that you have recently enjoyed, whatever it may be. Do you have a blurb for us?
2: I'm going to be a bit, uh, what's the word? I'm going to be a bit self- Aggrandizing, let's say. Okay, <laughs> okay. Um, I'm going to even bl- struggle to say. Something <laughs> I'm going to blurb uh, the two testaments. Oh, okay, okay, all right. <laughs> all right. Insightful, invigorating, delightful. The two testaments is sure to invite deep reflection, theological engagement, and invite some of the greatest guides to take you along on a walk through the Bible. Well done. Okay, Is well, I mean, I want to listen. Okay, you sold
1: okay, me, and okay. if you,
2: you, so it wasn't an undersell.
1: <laughs> <laughs> if you were sold by Ronnie's blurb, and uh, you want to listen to more of this podcast, uh, then please do subscribe. You can go to our website, the dot com, or you can subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, and if you think that I'm so sold that I want to let other people know about this, we'd really appreciate that too. So you can share the podcast. You can go on to uh, Apple iTunes or Apple Podcasts and write us a review. And it just takes a minute to do. uh, And it's a huge help in terms of spreading the word about the two testaments. Uh, But in the meantime, I hope you're excited about joining us on this journey through Romans. And uh, until next time, take care.
0: The Two Testaments is produced with the support of Sanford University, where Ronnie Cosman and Will Kines are professors in the Department of Biblical and Religious Studies. Thanks to Joe Zellner, Jody McFarland, and the team in the Faculty Success Center, and our student assistants, Carson Knopf, Jake Maddox, Harrison Pike, and Gracie Plunk, for their help with production, editing, and promotion.